Welcome to the Eat Right Nutrition Podcast, where we partner with experts in the health, wellness, and nutrition field to deliver you an excellent variety of content based on real science, real facts, and real food. I'm your host, Daron. And I'm Nicole. And today we're talking fat loss, diet culture, and disordered eating with Dan Feldman. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to episode number 105 of the Eat Right Nutrition podcast. Today, we are joined with registered dietitian Dan Feldman, and we are talking about important concepts when it comes to fat loss, long-term success, motivational interviewing, healthy at every size, diet culture, anti-diet culture, and disordered eating. Ladies and gentlemen, Dan Feldman, who is power lifter, is a power lifter dietitian? Power lifter. I get confused if it's power lifter or power lifting, but power lifter dietitian on Instagram. So go give him a follow. He's got some excellent content. And uh, Dan, I think I want to get started by talking a little bit about your background and where obviously where power you have a background in powerlifting. Yeah. Um, and then what led you to dietetics and what led you to some of the content that you're doing now? Um, because I think that might be a little bit different than powerlifting stuff. So talk to us a little bit about uh, just kind of like a brief history. Sure, sure. So yeah, I uh, have, I am a dietitian, obviously registered dietitian. I have a master's degree in human nutrition. Uh, today, I uh, have a full-time private practice. That's, you know, what I main thing that I do, you know, as a, as a, a living, I see clients mostly virtually. Um, and I actually accept health insurance. So most of my patients rather than, or most of my clients, rather than, you know, paying me out of pocket, a lot of them use their health insurance and, and, uh, you know, I get paid that way. I also do, uh, some part-time work for examine.com. You're probably familiar with doing, uh, you know, nutrition and health related research for them. Um, as far as sort of how I kind of got into this field without going into my whole life history. Originally, I actually wanted to be a professional musician. Um, I was really, really into playing music, playing guitar um, around when I was like 18 years old and, and um, uh, went to university. I decided that was more of a hobby. Wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do, um, but I had always had an interest in nutrition and fitness. I was uh, kind of on the heavier side when I was a bit younger, between the ages of like eight and 13. I actually did struggle from that time through up until maybe my early twenties with body image issues, um, you know, because of that, um, I actually did have, you know, um, uh, definitely disordered eating and, 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 um, an eating disorder as well. Um, so with that background, you know, going into college and, and starting to get into lifting weight, starting to enjoy that, you know, I spoke to my, uh, uh advisor, you know, in college, and they mentioned uh, you could do dietetics, which meant you could become a registered dietitian. I thought, hey, that sounds really official. So I'll do that. So then I did the, you know, four year program. And, um, uh, you know, in the United States to become a registered dietitian, you have to do this year long um, unpaid internship, you actually have to pay like 1000s of dollars to do it. It's sort of like a, a medical residency, if you will. Um, wasn't sure if I wanted to do that. So got my master's degree, then decided, yes, I want to do that. So I did that, came in RD in 2019. Um, and 
worked in uh, long-term care for a little bit before starting my own private practice. And um, obviously, the long way uh, picked up powerlifting. So I am a somewhat decent powerlifter, I guess. I do compete uh, locally in, in, in USAPL. Um, and, you know, a lot of my content actually on Instagram is focused on either uh, nutrition research. So the, the you know, the ma- my uh, master's program really focused on interpreting um, and, uh, you know, nutrition research uh, based findings, you know, how to actually dig into peer reviewed literature and, and generate conclusions for that. So that really sparked an interest in me in uh, nutrition research, you know, and, and I started to, you know, on my Instagram, uh, first, I would just uh, post uh, lifting videos just because, and then I started to be like, you know what, I, I like nutrition research. So why don't I post kind of stuff that's breaking down research in a way that's easy to understand for people. And people seem to really, um, kind of, uh, appreciate that. So a lot of my content started to focus on that and, and given my history with disordered eating and body image and whatnot, I do also post about that from a male perspective. Um, you know, we, we don't hear as many male voices posting about that stuff. So yeah, that kind of brings me to where I am today, doing the power listing still. Um, not a phenomenal power lifter by any means, but I can hold my own at local meets. You got totals for us for power lifting? How are you doing there? Oh boy. So I can, so, so the last time I competed uh, was April of 2021. And that time I was actually, it was USAPL. I was, uh, I, I didn't like try to cut weight or anything. I just did it kind of like because, um, so I was actually, I think it was the 83 kilogram weight class, but like a very light 83 kilograms. I was weighing like 166, uh, pounds at that time. Um, I went nine for nine. My squat was, I don't remember the exact number, but approximately 413 pounds, whatever that kind of kilogram, you know, mark is, um, bench was 303 point, whatever. And deadlift was about 468. So that's the last time I competed. More recently, I'm actually weighing like 155 pounds right now, and um, I'm still able to to uh, hit those those bent those uh, bench and deadlift maxes pretty comfortably in the gym. Squats kind of taking a hit. I'm generally squatting between 390 and 400, you know, as as kind of maxes in the gym right now. Uh, so you know, decent numbers. You know, nothing not not too shabby. Nothing not like world class or national or or on a national level or anything like that. But I'll tell you what, pound for pound, they're better than my numbers. I was going to say, it sounds pretty incredible to me, but. Yeah. Thank you. And it's, it's funny at it all. It, it's kind of one of those things that it really, it all depends on context. Like, you know, if I walk into like, you know, if I walk into a really gung-ho powerlifting gym, all competitors, oftentimes, you know, um, you know, people might look at those numbers and be like, oh, they're not so great. But then kind of just depending on who it all really depends on context. And, um, you know, I try not to focus too much on, oh, it, it, are these great numbers? Are these bad? And just kind of more focusing on improving, you know, for myself, as opposed to wearing sort of where I stack up compared to other people, you know? Exactly. I think that's a great message for our audience yeah. too, is yeah. uh, focusing on yourself and your goals and not really, we talk a lot about not focusing on what other people are doing and just kind of staying in your lane and focusing on, are you getting better? You know, it's interesting. Oftentimes I see people who, you know, get really heavy into the fitness aspect of things and 
I think in dietetics, right, with my experience, with my personal experience, going to school for nutrition and dietetics, that I find that um, oftentimes what leads people to the field of dietetics is their own personal experience. Uh, and it also kind of leads the way that they practice, which is evident in some of the content that you post. I want to talk a little bit about where you're at in terms of fat loss and coaching fat loss and some of the strategies that you use or may use to achieve those goals based on your experiences. Sure. Yeah. So, so with fat loss now, I know, you know, some people, some dietitians um, will be, um, you know, really gung ho and saying that, you know, intentional weight loss is, is always bad or always contraindicated. Um, I certainly don't agree necessarily with that notion, but as a coach, as a practitioner, as a dietitian, you know, it is important when someone does, you know, say they want to lose fat, that we do make sure that it makes sense, both sort of with where they're at, like if they're already really lean, you know, I mean, you know, maybe if they want to get stage lean, that's one thing, but, you know, we kind of just want to be mindful and make sure that they're in a good spot, both physiologically to lose fat, as well as psychologically, you know, occasionally someone will come to me and they want to lose fat and, and maybe they are, they do a BMI of 27 or whatever it is. And, and, um, you know, they could, from a physiological standpoint, uh, lose fat and maybe objectively it would improve their health, but maybe psychologically they, their relationship with food and their body image is just in a really bad spot or they're, uh, presenting with disordered eating behaviors whereby, uh, fat loss could be contraindicated. So that's really where the, the kind of, as a practitioner, um, you know, as a coach, a dietitian, um, you have to have that skill to navigate that while also acknowledging client autonomy. You know, at the end of the day, people have, have complete autonomy with what they want to do with their bodies, right? So say, okay, you know, someone comes to me and wants to lose fat and, and there aren't any of those big red flags or anything. As far as sort of strategies to develop that, I present, when, when I talk to clients, I kind of present to them like a, a pyramid, which I pretty much ripped off Eric Helms of his sort of nutrition pyramid, but I, you know, just to, to explain it to clients, but, but I mean, you know, obviously all credit to him for this entire concept where basically I, I talk to people about basically what's most important when it comes to fat loss. Right. And what I really drive home is, and so I'll tell people like, okay, we've got this pyramid. Um, what's at the bottom of the pyramid is the most important stuff, right? It's, it's the foundation for everything. You can't have the top of the pyramid without the bottom of the pyramid, but you can't have the bottom without the top, right? So most, most important thing at the bottom of that pyramid, when it comes to fat loss, way more than anything else is sustainability. So no matter what, and I'm sure we're all, you know, in agreement on this, but, but a lot of people tend to forget that no matter what sort of dietary regimen you know, whether it be macro counting or I don't know, like low carb or, or whatever it is, if it's not sustainable for the person you're working with, or if you're just someone trying to lose fat, if it's not sustainable for you, not going to work, or it might, maybe you'll lose weight, but you'll gain it back. You know what I mean? So the most important thing is that what we do is sustainable for that person, for that person's lifestyle. So it has to be individualized. Um, and then beyond that, I kind of go up this pyramid of like, what's most important. And I do say, you know, the next most important thing is ultimately calorie balance, energy balance. Even if we're not tracking calories, obviously it there's calories in, calories out, energy balance. That is what drives weight loss, weight gain, et cetera. So at least explaining that concept to people, you know, and then going on, talking a little bit about macronutrients, the importance of protein for satiety, eating an adequate amount of 
uh, carbohydrate and fat, you know, and, and vitamins and minerals and, and having a, a well-rounded diet, drinking plenty of water and fiber and et cetera. And then I basically tell people like most of the other stuff that you'll hear is not all that important um, for, for most people, like, unless, uh, you know, unless you've really got everything else down to a T. So like nutrient timing, there's a time and a place for that. But for most people coming to me, you're just looking for fat loss, nutrient timing, meal timing is not the most important thing. Same thing with supplements. So I really just go at it from there, kind of explain that framework. And then what's really important is having a collaborative approach with who I'm working with, right? Whereby I'm not just telling them, okay, this is what you need to do. Here's a meal plan. Here are our macros. This read this stuff and go. No, I will, will talk with my clients, have a collaborative, um, you know, kind of conversation to see where they're at and, and together we kind of troubleshoot and, and sort of see what's doable, what's not doable. We come up with goals together, you know, or, or, and I try and really encourage the client, you know, um, you know, to be an active participant and, and for them to really be coming up with as many as the goals as possible. Uh, because if someone wants to, to, you know, lose weight, they want to lose fat, they want to change their life in any way, it's going to be most effective if the client is the person who, who is the one that's really sort of coming up with the ideas. People are more likely to follow what uh, goals that they come up with, you know, rather than me just, just um, assigning people goals. So I know that was kind of a, a, a long spiel, uh, but basically sustainability, creating goals that, that do encourage a calorie deficit if someone wants to lose fat, but really making sure that it's client driven. I love everything about what you're talking about in terms of collaborative approach, because I think that's really important to keep the client's buy-in and, you know, really in deep, deeper into their why that they're there, right? So I do have one question for you. Why do you think it's the shiny new penny approach to giving a meal plan and following that? Why do you think that's so appealing to clients when we know, when we really do know that that isn't really the way to go for long-term lifestyle change? What do you think is the fancy approach or, you know, catch to that, that people, cause people still come to us on a daily basis going, just tell me what to do. I'll just follow it. I, and I'll give it a shot. So what yeah. is it that you think drives people to, you know, want that? Yeah. I think people want the, uh, and I, I, hopefully this doesn't like come out like wrong, but a lot of people are lazy. And I, I mean, and I know that sounds kind of bad, but like most people don't want to, really put in a lot of mental effort and, and kind yeah. of work. They want, people want the secret thing. Yeah. That's the yeah. big sort of secret. You know what I mean? They, they, and this is, I think this is true in many areas of life. You know, we want kind of the shiny new thing. You know, we don't want to hear that, you know, eating a diet high in fruits and vegetables and, and emphasizing protein and, and, you know, eating kind of slowly more mindfully and making small sustainable habit changes is the way to, to, you know, long lasting fat loss, because we've all probably heard that before, you know, yeah. and, and people kind of roll their eyes because it means they have to work. It yeah. means they have to, to, you know, really put in the effort as opposed to thinking that, that someone has the magic, the, 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 the magic thing that they've been missing, you know yeah. what I mean? And I think that yeah. that's, I mean, you know, people, people ask, people will make appointments for me all the time and they'll, um, and they'll be shocked when we get on a zoom call and I don't provide them a meal plan and they'll be like, yeah. what? Like, 
I thought that's what dietitians do, right? And, and I think it comes down to that. And it is, it is a tough conversation to have, you know, um, but it is the fact that, that, you know, there really is no big secret, secret. <laughs> here, you know, and, 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 you know, when, when clients do come to me, you know, kind of with that uh, mindset, I mean, sometimes it's just, you know, they're not at a point where they are ready to, to make these changes, but sometimes as a practitioner, if we can still work to just develop that camaraderie, you yeah. know, and, and someone can see like, maybe they're really disappointed. I'm not going to give them a meal plan, but they also see like, Hey, I'm a pretty decent guy or a pretty decent, you know, individual who like, I genuinely want to help, you know, and then we can kind of start to kind of draw out some of these internal motivations and, and, you know, um, by the way, for any sort of coaches uh, or practitioners listening to this, definitely look up, um, you know, motivational interviewing. Maybe you guys, I don't know if you've talked about this or yeah. you're probably very familiar with it, but this is a lot of sort of, um, you know, concepts related to motivational interviewing, you know, really getting that kind of the intrinsic motivation from the client being client directed. And another thing about sort of meal plans and, and, and um, just kind of describing the macros is it does it's kind of like in the short term, it's easier for both the, the client and the practitioner because the client, the practitioner just says, oh, here's a meal plan. Here you go. And the practice and the, the client, it's like they're just getting that, you know, but in mo- many cases that that's not really what, what gets the long term sustainable results. You know, it, we really have to go a little bit deeper. You know, it's uh, you brought up motivation, motivational interviewing, which both Nicole and I have read. And I will say that uh, the original book was probably the driest, most useful book that I've read. Um, And I did see, I actually took a snapshot you posted. I think it was on your story one day. It was motivational interviewing for, it was like nutrition nutrition. fitness. I literally looked it up as I was talking because I wanted to say the exact book. And I'm not saying this is like the motivational interviewing book. This is a, this is a particular book that talks about motivational interviewing and nutrition and fitness that I found particularly useful. That's the name, the title of the book. It's by Don Clifford and Laura Curtis. Um, I don't agree with every little single single thing in the book, but but most of the overarching themes in the book are very, very, very useful. You know, and I I have found it to be immensely useful just in my work with clients. I want to ask you this where so you mentioned kind of if people are kind of ready to lose weight and if they're in a place where they should physiologically, psychologically, where do we draw the line between somebody who should lose body fat or should lose weight? and somebody who shouldn't for one thing first of all as far as whether someone should or shouldn't at the end of the day uh the the client that should actually want to to lose fat you know if someone uh, and as 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 practitioners like if a client says they don't want to lose weight i don't care how much they weigh weight loss is not appropriate for them because they don't want to you know what i mean even if someone weighs has severe obesity you know they need to actually want to, 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 to change their lives. You know, they actually need to want it. So that's probably the biggest thing. And as far as in general, how to sort of navigate that, I mean, it really sort of depends on the client. Obviously, if there's, if there's sort of obvious signs of like, it, I mean, if, if they have any like uh, signs of disordered eating, or, or I mean, if they have been diagnosed with an eating disorder, probably wouldn't want to um, uh, focus on fat loss. You know what I mean? Um, you know, unless you are a, a someone who's very specialized to work with that. And then you kind of have to make sure that they are in a stable place whereby they they need to be. I think in a in a 
somewhat stable place with their body image and their relationship with food, you know? Um, and I think, you know, pe people may struggle with their body image to some extent because their body is larger. Um, and then maybe weight loss will help with that to some extent, but we also want to make sure that that person also has a level of acceptance with how they are now, if that makes sense. You know, if someone, and you see this sometimes, if someone, you know, has weight that they, they could lose or, or not, and they just have no sense of self-worth because of their weight and they want to lose weight because they feel like it'll prove their self-worth, that's a problem because then all of their self-worth is going to be dependent on their weight, right? So, so then maybe they, maybe they do lose weight. Well, I mean, they, they might just get super obsessive with it because their self-worth is tied into it. And if someone's really obsessive about losing weight, that can cause problems. But even if they do lose weight successfully, they get to their goal weight, A, they might not feel like it's enough because they're so tied into their weight being an important part of their self-worth that sometimes we see people will, will still feel like they need to lose more weight, lose more weight and get obsessive over it. Or even if not, even if someone ties, has all of their self-worth tied into their body weight or their image, and they do get to that goal, they're going to be obsessive with maintaining that. You know what I right. mean? Their underlining uh, issues are still going to be there, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, we, we can't all have the, the, the perfect, whatever that means, body forever. You know, we are, we are all going to age you know, changes in, in body weight are, uh, do occur as we get older, particularly, I mean, you know, for a woman, if, 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 if any woman plans on having a kid, you know what I mean? And, right. and it's important that if someone is going to pursue weight loss, that they have a sense of self-worth that is independent of their body weight. And that regardless of how their body weight changes, they still see themselves as worthy of happiness and they see themselves as whole and complete and accepting themselves as they are, which, which can mean that they still want to change their, 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 their body size. And this is something that kind of practitioners will argue a bit about, but this is my view, um, that you can, and, and, and should, you know, you, you can have that sense of self-acceptance as you are whether you weigh a hundred pounds, whether you weigh 300 pounds, whether you weigh 500 pounds, you can have that deep sense of self-acceptance as you are in this moment and as being worthy and being whole while also wanting to change things in your life, whether that be fat loss, whether that be wanting to earn more money, whether that be, you know, getting your career in another direction, whatever it is. Um, but that's the difference, you know, that making sure that someone is stable in their sense of self-worth and, uh, um, you know, and that they are, that they're pursuing weight loss for the right reasons. Let me kind of, I guess, jump in here with this uh, because you kind of hinted at it a little bit with practitioners having, I guess, difference of opinion in the field. And I see this a lot now more than ever. And I don't really know when this started to evolve and transform, but we've got a whole body of research that is healthy at every size that would suggest that regardless of what your size is, what your BMI is. And I've read some articles where I'm like, eh, I, I don't really, I've read some, just like any body of research, I've read some pretty decent articles and I've read some articles where I'm like, eh, I don't really agree with that. And I do think that there has been a shift that I notice in the practice of dietetics with certain practitioners where we've got diet culture and then we've got almost kind of extreme anti-diet culture. Yep. And the 
you shouldn't want to lose weight. You shouldn't have to. You should just accept your body. And I, I think that is correct me if I'm wrong. I think that's part of a little bit of what you're hinting at. So what are your feelings about how that shift occurred and what's going on currently? Yeah, so I know exactly what you're talking about. And there's this these kind of like extreme points of view that are developing, you know, whereby people on one side will see the people who are, you know, and this is with anything, politics or what have you, oftentimes people who are all the way on the extreme ends of the opinion spectrum tend to often be the loudest voices. So people on the other side see those loud voices and then they kind of go out strong against that. And then we end up having this big division, right? So there are people, there are practitioners who are, you know, they see, you know, some of the shitty stuff. Um, hopefully it's okay. I can curse on this podcast. Absolutely. Uh, cool. <laughs> cool. Fuck yeah. So, you know, people on the one, people on, on one side, uh, you know, people, you know, who practitioners will see some of the really shitty stuff that, that the kind of quote unquote diet culture people will do with per prescribing generic 1200 calorie diets, fat shaming people, um, you know, yeah. on the internet and just all this shitty stuff. And, you know, over time, We'll, we'll sort of take some, some, some uh, um, ideas that are good ideas, like the, the idea of, of taking a weight neutral approaches to health, which is, and I can talk more about that, but that's a very, very good um, you know, strategy for a lot of people, but then kind of take it to extremes, you know, the, the really extreme voices being you know, the people who say body weight and, and body adiposity has no relation to health. That is wrong. That's just wrong. But people right. say people say that, you know, and I think a lot of that is driven by emotion, in my opinion. Um, I can't speak for everyone, but I think a lot of that is driven by emotion when they do see people on the other side who are, you know, saying really, you know, uh, really harmful things about people who have obesity, you know, saying that they're lazy or, you know, right. people saying like, oh, people with obesity or, or, or fat people like need to just, you know, whatever. And they, they kind of take some kernels of truth, you know, which is like, for example, yeah, some people can, can have larger bodies and they can have, you know, health markers that are within the normal range, you know, and they can, and people can, people with larger bodies can uh, take action steps that, that do uh, improve their health and reduce their risk for chronic disease without changing the, the weight on the scale. But then we'll take that and, and say that, body adiposity uh, has no relation to health, which again is just wrong, um, you know, and then, and then also say things like, you know, and, and, and this is actually a little bit more common, um, you know, people saying that, that um, intentional weight loss is inherently bad, you know, or that everyone who doesn't teach intentional weight loss is, you know, you should never do that, even, even going so far as to shame people who do. Obviously that, that I don't agree with, you know, and then people on the other side see those people and they go, well, fuck you guys. And then they kind of driven, are driven harder in their beliefs. And right. it's kind of just this, this really toxic back and forth um, of like anti, and I, I don't, I, I honestly don't even love the, the word diet culture. Like I know a lot of people use it and, and, or the term like anti-diet, because I don't even know what that means, you know, or, <laughs> or, and, and, and people like our people will, will kind of had people ask me like, are you haze aligned? Like health at every size aligned? Like, I don't know what that means. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, so that is to say that, and, and this is true on most things is that when, if we take an extreme perspective, you know, uh, an extreme point of view, that's generally not a good thing. And the fact is, this is something that is nuanced, right? So, so yes, past a certain threshold, 
body adiposity, body fatness will independently increase risk for you know, uh, heart disease, certain cancers, type two diabetes, exactly where that threshold is, it, you know, it can be debate, debated. I definitely am of the opinion that the uh, BMI classification, you know, if someone has a BMI over 25, that doesn't necessarily mean they're at increased health risk. In fact, a lot of people who are a little bit more muscular have BMIs over 25. Um, you know, and there's a decent amount of literature to suggest that, uh, you know, there's, there are sort of nuance there. So, so certainly just using the BMI as an arbitrary threshold. Um, well, I think BMI can be a decent screening tool on a general population level. Certainly it's flawed and certainly just because someone is, you know, I'm overweight and yet I have semi-visible abs, you know what I mean? So, so certainly like that is, is something to consider, but past a th certain threshold, high, high levels of adiposity just are going to increase your risk for, for chronic disease. I could get into the, the adipokines, which are, are, you know, um, basically inflammatory molecules or, or, or molecules that are secreted by, um, by fat cells that can have these effects. So yeah, basically it's sort of really messy and nuanced. And it's also true that in a number of individuals trying to lose fat can be problematic for some people, you know, particularly if they already had a healthy body weight, you know, it, it and, and, and particularly people who are like trying to get really, really lean, that can increase the risk for disorder eating patterns, you know, um, and there are physiological mechanisms for that. So, yeah, you know, it was interesting. I, I had seen, it was an article a while back, Nicole, you and I had talked about this when it came out and we kind of conversed about this where Canada was looking to get rid of the conversation around BMI in medical offices with physicians and really have it just based off of lab work. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine if you're looking at lab work when you're 25 or even 35. But if you have a, an extremely high BMI, and, and this is where I kind of disagree with the viewpoint where it's just like, well, we should just be looking at lab work because you can look at lab work for somebody who's 20 and then you can look at lab work for that same person who's obese when they're 40 and that's going to be way different. Yeah. And the other thing I want to talk about is you, you did bring up social media and this is something we actually brought up on the last podcast. Uh, we talked to Dr. Joey Munoz and uh, we were we actually mentioned your Instagram and we mentioned the post that you did on. I see you, you kind of you kind of uh, tiptoe around that line of shitting on some people that probably definitely deserve it. You did a post on Carnivore MD. Oh, I've done like, yeah, and I thought, well, it was one in particular that really stuck out to me. Yeah, because he cited some studies, and you talked about those studies. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I know what you're talking about. And yeah. uh, it was like, well, this study was done on roundworms, and I, I just honestly, I'm like, kudos to you. It was, it was definitely well, well done. And uh, you know what? The, the interesting piece with the social media thing, though, is that nobody's going to really look at those references. And even if they do, they don't even know how to interpret that information. Yeah. And that is that that is obviously um, a problem as well, because, yeah, like you you can cite that. And obviously, kind of RMT is an extreme example, because he would cite studies that just had nothing to do with what he was talking about. But even, you know, less kind of um, less extreme examples where people are making claims and they are citing studies, which at least on the surface, do support their claims. You know, you do hear a lot of people say, oh, well, you can kind of can find the studies to support any point. They're kind of right. Uh, and and I, I mean, even though I don't love that argument, like it, they are kind of right in that you can 
find a study that at least on the surface can support your claim. So, so there's really a decent, pretty a decent amount of, of expertise that's required when interpreting nutrition literature, because sometimes you will find a, a study that on the surface seems pretty well conducted and does show like maybe there's a randomized control trial and it does show like, I don't know, like um, artificial sweeteners are bad or whatever, or like actually, you know, there was um, uh, one study that was like a cohort study with like a lot of people, like there was thousands of people and, and show that supposedly, you know, um, foods with, with um, higher pesticide residues were associated with greater mortality, right? So someone could take that and, and that study and be like, hey, look, we should all worry about pesticides. We should all eat organic, bam, there you go, right? But if you actually read the study, you would kind of look in the methods and see, okay, well, they didn't actually measure the pesticide residues in the foods they used, um, uh, you know, they used, uh, you know, data uh, from those years that said like, okay, in these years, on average, strawberries had these levels of pesticides and melons had these levels of pesticides. And, and then they would look at people, okay, these people ate more strawberries. So we're going to assume they ate more pesticides. You know what I mean? So, and, and then you can get even deeper into kind of statistical methods and, and, and how they're generating their conclusions. Um, and that is to say that, you know, you really have to have a pretty thorough understanding of a how to read a study and interpret it and, and look at how they actually got to the outcomes that they did. And it's also being able to understand a an outcome within the broader or, uh, literature, right? Because sometimes we do have studies that, that just show something uh, that is contrary to what we might expect, but it's a lone study and maybe it was due to chance, you know? So, so yeah, and that, that is, is, is a very difficult conversation to have on social media where generally attention spans are short. People are, are not, it's not really designed to have nuanced conversations. It's more designed for, for kind of quick clicks, likes, shares, um, sort of instant, instant gratification, if you will. Um, so it definitely makes it tough to have an accurate, I guess, conversation about some of this stuff. You know, I will say, uh, the one thing that I find is that in general, I won't say, I won't say every doctor, but I think a, someone who studied nutrition thoroughly, especially at, at the graduate level, um, or doctoral level, their interpretation and their ability to read nutrition research, I think is much different than a physician, right? Clinical physician, they learn how to read medical research. And I just think that study design, you really have to have an understanding and really have an eye for what's going on in nutritional research and how to even design those studies. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I agree. And, and even, I mean, like, even like, I mean, I can look at, you know, my schooling as an RD. I mean, masters aside, you know, when I just caught my RD, I had one class that was on re research methods, you know what I mean? Um, and it was like, you know, like one semester compared to like the, how, however many classes we had, food, we had on food service, you know what I mean? So, so um, yeah, unless you're like really interested in it and willing to take the time to, to invest in developing those, those skills and developing you know, those skills of how to read and interpret research and critical thinking skills, it's going to be really hard to interpret things past the abstract. You know, I've been doing this for a while. I have the master's degree. I literally, for part of my job, read, you know, at least 30 plus peer reviewed studies per month, if not significantly more. And I still come across shit pretty frequently that I'm like, what the hell are they talking about in, in yeah. these studies? You know what I mean? Or sometimes I'll come across statistical methods and I'm like, 
I really hope they know what they're doing because I don't know what they did here, you know, and, and that's even at that level. So, so yeah. And, and I don't know if there's like a solution to that other than, you know, taking things with a grain of salt, especially on social media. Um, but yeah, it definitely makes it difficult to have this kind of have, you know, evidence-based conversation. Well, I want to get into some of the conversation in, in terms of disordered eating and eating disorders. This is definitely more kind of my excitement or realm of conversation. So I know you mentioned um, at the beginning when you were talking about kind of your journey into nutrition that you had experienced some disordered eating slash eating disorder. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more about that and what the differences are between disordered eating and an eating disorder? Yeah. So an eating disorder is a diagnosis. Um, and that is something that, that can only be diagnosed by a medical practitioner that, that can diagnose dietitians actually cannot diagnose, um, you know, whether it be a, uh, I don't know, a psychiatrist or, or, you know, what have you, but it's a specific diagnosis that f- uh, fulfills specific criteria, specific DSM criteria. That would be an eating disorder, right? Anorexia nervosa is an eating disorder. Bulimia nervosa is an eating disorder, right? Um, there are others as well. Those are just two very notable ones. Disordered eating, uh, it's, it doesn't have as sort of straightforward of a definition. According to the, like I said, the eatright.org, you know, website, they, they say disordered eating is used to describe a range of irregular eating behaviors that may or may not warrant a diagnosis of a specific eating disorder. So yeah, it's, it's, and, and they, they kind of, kind of, like I said before, they, they're saying, you know, the most significant difference between an eating disorder and disordered eating is whether or not the symptoms and experiences align with the criteria designed by the American Psychiatric Association and that the term disordered eating is a descriptive phrase, not a diagnosis. So that's a long-winded way of saying it's a lot more subjective, disordered yeah. eating. You know, yeah. um, it's, it's kind of what it sounds like. It's not a specific diagnosis. You know, I can say with what I went through, I kind of hesitate to say that I had an eating disorder because you know, while some of the symptoms may sound a lot like an eating disorder, I don't, I don't actually have my chart in front of me, but I don't think I was ever actually diagnosed, you know what I mean? Um, but, but disordered eating is definitely something that's more warranted. So, so, you know, I can kind of look at someone's eating patterns and kind of identify that as disordered eating, because that's a little bit more subjective, but again, eating disorder is a diagnosis. It's a medical diagnosis. So my next question is then what are some of the characteristics of disordered eating? I always kind of describe it as a kind of like a prerequisite to a pathway to an eating disorder. Like there are definitely red flags like food obsession, uh, control issues around food. Over-exercising. Uh, oh, yeah, things like over, that. yeah. The smaller things that kind of that you start to look into that people talk about, even what you talked about in terms of low self-esteem and tying their weight to an, a result, kind of an all or nothing approach, either they're completely, you know, overindulging or completely depriving these big swings in, in um, approaches to what they eat, literally having a breakdown when they get on the scale, like everything weighs on literally that way in these types of things are what I consider to kind of a breakdown in their relationship with food and are basically a fundamental stepping stone to be able to get to a place where weight loss, muscle gain, whatever it is that their goal is, those have to be addressed in my opinion before anything 
can be really focused on in terms of even a health and wellness goal. Like if you really can't walk in and see cookies without having issues with obsession and control and overindulgence or deprivation. I feel like that's something that needs to be worked on and worked out or talked through, or like you said, coached before or while even they're in the process of, of um, achieving goals. Yeah, you know, and that that definitely makes a lot of sense. And yeah, disordered eating, again, it doesn't have really a specific definition. So when I kind of say my view of what it is, it's not like, it's not the official disordered eating, like, thing or anything like that. But I mean, I, you know, if someone's eating patterns or their relationship with food is significantly affecting their quality of life in a negative way, I, I would probably say that that would be uh, maybe may may qualify as disordered eating. So yeah, kind of like you said, anxiety around certain fu- foods, preoccupation with certain foods, really significant shifts in weight, um, a lot of rigidity, a rigid mindset yeah. towards food or exercise, feelings of guilt and shame, preoccupation yes. with food, feelings of loss and control, trying to make up for perceived deviations in, in mm-hmm. nutritional patterns, you know, those are sort of things that I would would generally characterize as disordered eating. Again, I can't emphasize enough. This is not like the definition. These are just, it, it's a little bit more subjective here. Yeah, agree. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I have seen you, uh, you did a post at one point about nutrition, referring to nutrition as a dimmer and foods as a kind of a dimmer rather than a light mm-hmm. switch. And I think that kind of ties into this conversation. So do you yeah. want to talk to us a little bit about that? Sure. So with that post, yeah, basically I had a picture of like a dimmer, like when you, you kind of imagine like a, a light dimmer where it's sort of like a circle and you turn it clockwise to make it more bright or counterclockwise to light, make it less bright. And I kind of liken nutrition and nutritional choices to that as opposed to a traditional light switch that goes on and off. And what I meant by that is that a lot of people look at their diets. They look, they, they, first off, they refer to a nutrition regimen for fat loss or otherwise as a diet. They're like, I'm on a diet and they dichotomize it as being on a diet or not being on a diet, having that kind of black and white diet or not on the diet, right. Uh, kind of being that light switch on and off. So they are on their diet, right. And then um, they deviate and they say, okay, now I'm off my diet. What happens? They binge, you know what I mean? Um, and, and, you know, they fall off. Um, whereas being on a diet is, is not a thing, you know what I mean? It's, it's just a, it's just a, it's a concept that we've created for ourselves. There's really no, there's no kind of switch in your body that says, Oh, I'm on a diet now. No, it's just a mental construct that we've created, right? We're always just eating food and drinking beverages and consuming stuff that our body breaks down and assimilates, you know, on a very sort of fundamental level. So there's never this kind of on off kind of thing. It's just a a story that we create in our own heads. Um, Now, in reality, when we are talking about eating in a certain way for a particular goal, you know, we can kind of look at it as this sort of dimmer in that it can shine more intensely, you know, if we turn that dimmer clockwise, so we are, um, you know, being maybe we're, we're, you know, um, being a little bit more adherent with regards to eating within a certain calorie range, or we're really emphasizing larger amounts of certain foods like fruits and vegetables, and, you know, um, uh, minimizing or, or de-emphasizing 
you know, maybe more calorie dense foods, for example, whereas maybe other times, like maybe it's a birthday or something like that, we, we turn the dimmer the other way counterclockwise. So um, it's not that we're going completely off binge mode, but, you know, maybe we do have one or two slices of cake, you know, we have a slice of pizza, some chips, have a beer, you know, and, and we are, it's not that we're ever off, but it's just the intensity of that kind of brightness with the extent to which we are, you know, I guess, I guess following certain kind of, um, you know, eating patterns might, might be a little bit less intense, you know, if that makes sense. So, so it really kind of the big kind of thing with that is getting away from the black and white uh, mindset towards nutrition, because that is maybe the biggest thing. One of the biggest things that people who are looking to lose weight or change their, change their health through nutrition struggle with is they think of this, this kind of, they have this black and white sort of attitude or black and white mindset around nutrition and around health, where they're either doing good or, or doing bad. And this kind of goes back to our conversation earlier about sort of these extremes or these extreme opinions, like in the fitness industry with, with, um, uh, you know, diet culture and anti-diet culture. I think that just we as humans like simple, we like thinking good, bad, yes, no, like mm-hmm. on off. And it, it takes a lot more kind of brain work to, to, to move past that and really look at things, um, with a degree of nuance and, and, and looking and, and, and really understanding these different shades of gray. You know, I've also, um, had, I've, I've posted this about a dozen times on my Instagram, like a food spectrum where like on one side of the spectrum is foods eating it to eat in larger quantities more often. And on the other side, sort of foods to eat in smaller quantities, less often, and, and kind of looking at things with that, uh, degree of nuance, I think is, is a, is a much, uh, more productive way to, 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 uh, go about, you know, uh, adjusting our nutritional habits. Listen, Dan, I appreciate you coming on. I love your content. I have seen your page grow tremendously over the last year, maybe two. I I don't know when you like really started focusing on it, but I've seen you go from a few thousand to where you are now. And you're definitely doing a great job and you're putting out excellent content. I love seeing evidence-based content. So I really appreciate the content that you're putting out. And uh, I'll say, uh, keep fighting the good fight. Thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Ladies and gentlemen, we're going to end there. And if you enjoyed this episode, click subscribe, give us five stars, write a review, share this with a friend, and you'll hear us next week.